Are you ready for some word tonight? All right. All right. No messing around. All right. Let's get into the word. I want to meet you in the book of Romans this evening. I want to go to the Apostle Paul for a little bit. Um, As I was praying and just asking the Father how we should start this, um, I, I, I kept circling back really to only one thought in my heart. And uh, it, it is a verse I want to open with tonight. And I, not to be too pointed, um, I can't get this one out of my head. I can't get this verse out of my head and I can't get the theme or the idea of this verse out of my heart. And I want to just wrestle a little bit of this with you tonight, if that's okay. Um, what I mean by that is I want us to just try to take this and, and, and see where we go with it. I, I don't, I don't have a determined landing spot. I know you're supposed to have messages really squared off front and back. You know, you know where you're starting and you know the road you're going and where you want to end up. Um, sometimes I have those. In fact, most of the time I have those. But sometimes I have a thought and I know some things I want to work out. And I thought, well, you guys are becoming a place where we're real relaxed teaching and preaching and kind of like family. And so we can just wrestle out some stuff together and see where we land. And you, you can leave with some thoughts that you can work on because I respect the Holy Spirit in you. I I believe that you have the same Holy Spirit. Now, hold on with me here. I believe you have the same Holy Spirit Jesus had. I don't, I don't think you have a lesser version of it or a, or a 2,000-year-old version, and he's not moving as spryly as he did in the first century. I don't believe that. I believe the Holy Spirit, the eternal, what Paul called, what Hebrews called the eternal spirit, is as alive in you as it was in Jesus. I'm not encouraging you to go out here to the lake and try to walk on the water. Um, and if, if you do that, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. But I, I'm not telling you that that's what you do with the Holy Spirit, but I do believe you have the ability to hear from God. And I believe you have the same ability to hear from God as Jesus did. And what we have to do is practice cultivating that. And sometimes the only way to really practice that is to learn how to shut off the other voices. And so you have to close your ears to some of the other things, but you have to open them to the Holy Spirit. In that, we have to be open to hear things that don't sound familiar and realize that the Holy Spirit in us is capable of rising up when we hear something that doesn't sound familiar and holding our hand as we wrestle with it. Otherwise, what happens is we've been so conditioned in the church to be on guard against false doctrine that anytime we hear something that doesn't sound exactly like what we grew up on or exactly like what we hear at church or exactly what our favorite preacher is saying, we start to push those voices out and we don't listen, even though it could be the revelation the Holy Spirit's trying to get us to listen to. But we've been so conditioned in the church to be on guard against false doctrine that we don't listen to anything we have to wrestle with. And so a lot of times what we're doing is coming into church and just looking for something easy. Now, what I mean by easy, because when you say that in church, people think you mean soft on sin. You know, oh yeah, everybody wants to go to church at soft. That's not even what I'm talking about. We want to come in and just slide into amen mode. So the guy can get up and start preaching. We just go, amen, amen, glory to God, hallelujah, praise the Lord. He could be up there running his fingers over his lips and reading a phone book. And we're just going, praise God, amen, glory to God. Because we're not really paying attention. We're not engaging with the Holy Spirit. We're not allowing Christ to say anything to us. We just like to slide into that routine. And hey, I've preached those meetings where all you got to do is get up, kind of spit and run around a little bit, jump up and down, quote a couple verses, scream a, a, a little rhyming tune to people over and over. And you got yourself a revival. They'll walk out and go, boy, you got to come hear this guy. Man, he's got the Holy Ghost. He didn't even, he didn't even open his Bible. Didn't, didn't read a scripture. And, and just, just whatever. So I, I, we're better than that. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the ability to listen. So when we hear something and we go, well, I don't know what to do with that. Where do I go with that? Don't let our first response be shut down. Let our first response be, Lord, I'm open. I just want to hear you, Father. I know I have the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had. And if this conflicts with that Jesus, I'm able to just say, okay, that's enough for me. I don't need any more. But if it's something to wrestle with, then I want to wrestle with it. Are we on the same page? 
That's just sort of one of the upfront statements as you get started in three meetings is just to say, hey, as, as it falls out there in front of you, just let the Holy Spirit do the wrestling. You hold his hand, he'll hold yours and, let, and see what happens. All right. And as we read and as we wrestle, let's see where the Holy Spirit takes us. One verse to start with tonight from Romans chapter 11. One verse to start with. I want to make that clear. <laughs> it's not our only verse, but it is the one I can't shake in my heart right now. Romans chapter 11, verse 32. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. I want to, I want to read it again. God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. And I don't want to treat any of you like preschoolers. You know how to read. This isn't about walking through word for word, but I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. I want to make sure that we're checking out the import of this verse because this has really been burning on my spirit for weeks. Uh, in fact, I would even say for a, for a couple of months, the Holy Spirit's been working on this. So I, at, at risk of insulting, let's go through it a third time, shall we? Now, I just want to focus on the same things together. Here we go. God has imprisoned how many? Okay. God has imprisoned all in disobedience. How many of you believe all means all? Okay. That means that God has imprisoned how many people? All, all in disobedience. Are you in the all? Well, if all means all, then you're in the all, and I'm in the all, and we are all. All meaning everybody that was alive when Paul wrote it in Romans 11, right? And if God is God, and He is always God, then the God that was imprisoning in disobedience in Romans 11, would you say that's the same God that's alive and well in Tabernacle of Hope? Okay, I know I'm being elementary, but we're just walking through this so we can figure out where we need to land in this wrestling. If that God imprisoned everybody in disobedience then, and we believe it's the same God now, and all means all, then if God has imprisoned everybody in disobedience, how many of you believe that that means that in some way in your life you've been imprisoned in disobedience? All means all. Okay, if God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to whom? All means all. All means all in Romans 11. All means all today. That means that God then will be merciful to how many people? All people. Stack this up. This is what's been so impressive in my spirit stack up what paul has said god has put everybody inside of bars inside of a prison of disobedience we're going to really examine what that might mean in a moment of disobedience but look, we're just starting from the beginning he's put everybody in a prison of disobedience for one reason is it because he's mad at everybody we're just going to stay in this verse we're not running outside of this verse yet is it because he's mad at everybody? Is it because everybody's a sinner? Is it because everybody's in rebellion? Is it because God wants to show everybody a lesson? Or, staying in this verse, is it because God wanted to have equal mercy on every single person? And is it possible to have equal mercy on every single person if every single person has a varying amount of guilt? The answer would be no, you can't have an equal amount of mercy. Let's make sure we understand mercy. I think one of the things we've convoluted in the church is mercy and grace. Okay? Mercy is that God does not do what we deserve. God does not give what our actions have paid for. That's merciful. A merciful God looks at you and says, in spite of yourself, I'm going to forgive you. You don't deserve it. I'm going to do it anyway. That's a merciful God. Aren't you glad for a merciful God? Yes. <laughs> a merciful God says, even though you haven't earned it, I'm going to bless you anyhow. Well, how much would I have to do to earn it? That's the kicker. You can't. So I'm going to be merciful to you. 
and I'm on withhold. Okay, mercy then is God's not giving me what I deserve, and in some ways we could say giving me what I don't deserve. Grace is the very livelihood of who God is. It's the very heartbeat of what God is. It is God blessing us where we do not deserve, promoting us where we have not earned it. Mercy and grace work in tandem. That God, who is full of grace and mercy, notice that in the Bible, God who's full of grace and mercy, why is he full of both? Because if he's going to bless you with what you don't deserve, he's going to only be able to do it if he doesn't get you what you do deserve. So he's only going to be able to be gracious if he's also merciful. So I love to preach grace, but I'm learning that I need to fall in love just as much with priest and mercy. Right? Because grace is beautiful. Like God gives me what I don't earn, what I don't deserve. But mercy is God does not give me the things that I have earned, that I have deserved. And that's a good thing. And I want, but, but what I want to understand is that what does God's mercy look like across the board? Now, if I bring a certain level of guilt to the table and you bring a certain level of guilt to the table, but they are not the same level of guilt, they are not the same sin. I'm, I'm, we're making this really elementary. I, I have to so I can process it, okay? So forgive me. We, we don't bring the same stuff to God. I'm not even going to walk around the room and ask you what you brought to God when you needed mercy. In fact, that's even the wrong way to say that because you're not finished needing mercy, by the way. Okay? That's what we're going to learn tonight, too. This isn't my past. Like, oh, thank God he was merciful to me when I was a sinner. I've heard Christians say that my whole life. He was merciful to me when I was a sinner. Bless God, he's merciful to you when you ain't a sinner. You better thank God he's still merciful to you. What are you bragging about? Like, he was merciful to me when I was a sinner. You need God to be merciful to you right now. You need God to be merciful to you tomorrow. Don't give me that yesterday business. So you brought your stuff to the table. I bring my stuff to the table, but it might not be necessarily equal. Whatever equal looks like, who cares, right? But maybe it is, maybe it isn't. God wants to be merciful on everyone. And so in being merciful on everyone, God wants everyone to be able to receive the fullness of his mercy. The fullness of his mercy. Now, how's that possible if we don't bring the same guilt to the table? What if one dude's pretty good and this guy over here is Hitler? You go, well, God can't be merciful to the... First of all, a lot of us Christians go, well, God can't be merciful to Hitler. Let's just suspend that for a moment and go, God gets to be merciful to whomever he wants to. In fact, according to Romans 11.32, he wanted to show mercy on how many? All. All. We're we're still in the book, right? We're still in the book. So God wants to show mercy to all. So we're going to go ahead and put him in there too right now. We're just, going to put, we're just going to put him in the equation for fun, right? Now, we don't bring the same thing to the table that that guy brings to the table, but God wants to pour the same amount of mercy out on all humanity. So how is he possibly going to do that if we don't bring the same stuff to the table? So Paul figured it out. He goes, so God imprisoned everybody in the same disobedience. So that God could be merciful to everybody so that from the perspective of heaven not from the perspective of earth because from the perspective of earth we look at people's performance and we stack them up against each other but from the perspective of heaven paul says god imprisoned the whole human race just put them all in jail so that when he poured his mercy out on them he could pour it out equally on everybody so that you don't get a greater measure of god's mercy than I do, even though from the perspective of earth, that's how we look at it. Boy, God had to be really merciful to that guy. He was really bad. He has been merciful to me, but thank God for his mercy. And -and so-and-so really needs his mercy. And we're just praying God's mercy on them. They really need his mercy. That's what we say when someone gets caught sinning. You know, after we kick them and cut their head off but after we get done kicking getting a good kick in we go boy that what they really needs god's mercy because they've sinned big time so they need god to really pour his mercy out all right we've kind of laid a base for tonight all right that's just a base that's just a starting block all right that's a warning We're, we're gonna work from there but what we've actually done tonight i think is we've answered a question that paul put out into the ethos a little bit earlier in the book of Romans. So let me pause for a moment, slow down here for a second, do a little teaching, all right? 
The book of Romans is a spectacular conversational argument on the part of the Apostle Paul. Conversational in that Paul probably doesn't have a pen in his hand. He's probably not writing the book of Romans. He's speaking it. When you get to the end of the book, he even says the man's name who has wrote it down, Tertius. I think Tertius who's written this. And so it's Paul talking to his buddy. I always kind of like to imagine they're sitting and having lunch. And Tertius is writing everything Paul says. And if you'll read Romans that way, it makes sense why sometimes the book of Romans sort of meanders. Paul will get on a topic and he'll hit it really well. And then he'll kind of slide over here in the weeds for half a chapter. And he'll ask a question or two and kind of go off the rails. And then he'll come back real hard onto his main point. You'll notice him do that a lot in the book of Romans early. You get through like the eighth chapter and then he just jumps off over here into this Israel and the Gentiles bit in chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. And then he jumps back over into the personal righteousness, uh, living sacrifices bit from Romans 12. And Romans is kind of, he kind of meanders that way. Paul writes that way a lot because Paul's not writing. Paul's talking. And when we talk, we don't talk the way we write. And so we kind of move, you know, we kind of snake around the topic. Paul also is great at asking questions. And in some ways, he's asking rhetorical questions because he doesn't expect his audience is actually going to write him an answer down. But also, and this is what's interesting to me in the difference between writing and talking. When you're writing, you write realizing that your statements can be pulled out of context. All right? You can say something. And someone can take it as a sentence and put it up by itself and it have nothing to do with what you really meant. But they pulled one sentence out of a whole paragraph. That happens all the time, right? That's why we say, man, you need to hear the whole clip. You sent me five seconds of a clip. You need to hear what that guy said right before that. That's why we do that because people are prone when you write. When you talk, we do it all the time. If you pulled every statement you ever made out here in the world, if it was a running transcript and people just pulled sentences they liked, they could build a whole different version of you. Because when we talk, we work our way around a subject. We throw something out. We don't necessarily agree with it. Then we kind of work around it. And then we talk for 20 more minutes and we land back there again. And I think when you read Paul, you need to remember that that's what Paul's doing. And some of the things we've done with Paul is we've taken his statements and we've pulled them out by themselves and built entire theology out of them. Okay, let me give you an example. Go to Romans 9. Now, I want you to note first and foremost that we're simply going backwards two chapters. I also want you to note that we're simply going into that section that I told you Paul apparently meanders for a little while into the whole Jew-Gentile argument. Paul makes this statement in Romans chapter 9, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction? I think the old King James says, vessels fit for destruction. Right? All right, before you read any further, go back to the top of that sentence. And I want you to notice the first two words. What if? God. First three words. What if God? Does that sound like a question to you? What if God? What if God? What if God, desiring to show His wrath, make known His power, has endured with much patience, objects of wrath, fit for destruction, and what if He has done so in order to make known the riches of His glory for the objects of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory, including us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Big question mark right there at the end, right? Okay, let's slow down. Let's lay Paul's argument right back out here in plain English. Paul's been wondering what the difference is in the Jew and the Gentile. The reality is that Paul knows that the difference in the Jew and the Gentile is Abraham's seed, circumcised, but he's come to knowledge of Christ And what he's watching is his Jewish brethren turning to Jesus as their Savior. And now you have a third sect. You have the Gentile, you have the Jew, 
and you have the believers in Jesus, what we call the Christians. They didn't call them that. But we'll do that for now just to make it clean. You have the unbeliever, the Gentile, you have the Jew, and you have the Christian. And so Paul is hoping to win his Jewish brethren. That's his, that'll be his whole argument. But on the way there, he goes, hey, you know, what if, maybe, what if God, to try and show his power at saving some, has decided to pour his wrath out on other people that by pouring his wrath out on them, it'll make his mercy look really good on everybody else. Paul goes, what if that's God? And here's what we did with that. We stopped reading. And we pulled stuff like that out of the Bible. And we went, you know, the apostle Paul, his theology was is that some people are vessels of wrath fit for destruction. God's going to get them. And other people are the elect that God's going to spare. And man, we preach that like it's a theology worth shouting over. Some people are going to fry because God's mad at them. And man, you can get the whole church get excited about people being the vessels of destruction. And not a soul in the church thinks they're one of the vessels of destruction, by the way. They're always the vessels fit for, for the glory and the elect. But they, everybody else, man, that's the vessels fit for destruction. And Paul was asking a question to start a conversation. Paul goes, what if God is the kind of God... Now, I want, now, I want to say it this way, and you see if you think this is God, all right? What if God's the kind of God that some people are just going to get it so that by them getting it, he is, can show how good he is to everybody else? Now, when I say that, what do you think of that God? You kind of go, wait a minute. That don't sound like God at all. Here's your challenge. Just work your way real slow from Romans 9, right there at 9, 22, 23, 24. You don't do this sitting here because we don't have this kind of time. But this is, your, this is your homework. Just work your way through Romans 9 real slow. And work your way through Romans 10 real slow. And work your way through Romans 11 real slow. And I got a feeling you're going to land where we started tonight in verse 32 where Paul answers his own question. And the God he asked a, question, a rhetorical question about in Romans 9 where he goes, what if God's the kind of God that some people are just going to get it so that it looks better when he's good to others? I think, I think there's a smile on his face when he asks it because he's like, come on, man, that ain't God. You know what? And here's how he lands. You know what I really think God is? God imprisoned all of us in disobedience so that he could be merciful to all of us. Because, guys, if you stack Romans 9, 22, 23, and 24 up against Romans eleven thirty two, they're contradictory. In Romans 9, you got a God that pours out his wrath on some vessels because they deserve it. But he's nice to others so that by being nice, he can, by being bad to one, he can show kindness to the other. And Paul gets to the end of his argument and goes, now, you know what I really think happened? I think God put us all in prison to something so that he could be good to all of us. Okay, what have we learned? Well, here's one thing we ought to have learned. Don't pull verses out of the Bible and develop theology if you're not going to read the whole context. Because, man, we got whole denominations that have done that. They just pull a verse, here a verse, everywhere a verse, verse, and the one that makes you shout the loudest and jump the highest, that's the one we build the next church out of and stick it out on the sign next to the road. But the truth is if we go back into it and realize that the wrestle was ongoing and we weren't always finding the answer in that spot, but if we would keep listening, we would get a little closer, then we might realize that there's more than meets the eye. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn is all of us have been in prison to something. Because what what's the word all mean? All. all. How many have you been imprisoned? All of us. This means it's not proper then for you to go find out who you think the biggest sinner is. Which one of us is messed up the most? No, wait a minute. How many of us are imprisoned? All of us. Now you might sit here and go, yeah, but I'm not in prison like so-and-so's in prison. Fair enough. We'll start there. Let's start right there. You haven't done as bad as so-and-so. I'll give you that. And you know what? You're not wrong. I promise you, someone's done worse than you. But now, if you want to play that game, the problem is somebody else done better than you, too. 
See, that's a double-edged sword. That's a tough one. Don't, don't play that game because the minute you start to play that game, you're never going to win because there's going to be somebody that out-prays you, out-believes you, out-reads you, out-jumps you, out-amends you, out If it's all about stuff, somebody's going to master stuff. All right? So you don't want to play that game, which is why you don't want to go find out who's the biggest loser, who's the biggest sinner, who's in the biggest need. But I'll, I'll go ahead and give it to you. You haven't done as bad as somebody else. Granted. So I want to go to work on that for a minute. Because if Paul means all have been imprisoned, then all have been imprisoned. Right? And if Paul means all have been imprisoned so that all could have mercy, that means all get mercy. So I don't even want to try to bother to figure out what it would look like if everybody got mercy. Because I want to start with us understanding what it means for all of us to be imprisoned. So let's, let's, let's do this first. Go to Galatians chapter 3. I want to take you to another Paul passage because it's only fair to me to stay with Paul for a moment. We're going to leave Paul in a moment and find that he's not by himself in this. But I want to stay with Paul for a moment. And I want to go to Galatians 3.21. Is the law opposed to the promises of God? Well, certainly not. If a law had been given that could make alive, then righteousness would have indeed come through the law. But the Scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin. Let me stop there and go back, say it again real slow. Scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin so that what was promised through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let's start right there. Scripture has imprisoned all of us under sin. If you've ever sinned, you are in the prison of sin. How many of you have ever sinned? Okay, all of you just did because you lied because nobody raised their hand or said amen. So now you have officially been imprisoned. <laughs> all right, so all of us, according to Scripture, have been imprisoned by sin. But that's just sin. There's more. Thir 23. Before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Take a look at that. Until faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith came. Guarded under the law. You only put a guard on something that is imprisoned or that is being protected, being quarantined. And Paul declares that the law imprisoned all of us and then guarded all of us. I think it's fascinating that in about a three-verse span, Paul says this about all of us. You've either been put in prison because you've sinned, check, whether you want to admit it or not, check, or you've been put in prison by the law of performance. Check, check. Right? What's the law of performance? Do's and don'ts. Right. Got to do, God will bless you. Don't, you'll be cursed. Yeah. How many of you have had any of that in your background? Oh, Welcome to prison. Yeah. And it felt like it too, didn't it? Yeah. Didn't take long before even church started feeling like prison. Right. You know why? Because we had replaced the deliverance of the new covenant Jesus and started preaching moralisms as the definition of what holy people look like. And the minute we start preaching moralisms as the definition of what holy people look like, do this, don't do this, wear this, don't wear this, go here, don't go here, be this person, don't be this person. The moment we did that, we walked right back into the prison cell, slammed the door behind us, and left our liberty on the street. Because we went into the imprisonment of the law, which confined us all as guilty because you can't live the do's and the don'ts. You just can't do it. And if you made 99 of them, you'd mess the other one up, which throws you right back in jail. Because you don't get to go to the judge and go, yeah, I mean, I know I broke that law, but I didn't break that one and that one and that one and that one and that one. And he goes, we're not on trial for the ones you didn't break. We are on trial for the one you did break. Yes. Yeah, but I was real charitable and I gave a lot of money and I did this. He goes, no, you don't understand how this works. You're guilty in one point. You're guilty in all of it. Are you imprisoned? Yes. Yeah. So I believe we've all been imprisoned. Now, some of it's obvious. You go, I've been imprisoned to sin. 
I did a bunch of stuff I knew I shouldn't do and I couldn't stop doing it and it ruined my life and it stole my money and it stole my marriage and it stole my sanity and it was sin. And that's a prison that no one wants to live in. That's hell, by the way. As far as I'm concerned, it is hell. When you spurn the love of God and turn towards darkness, that's hell. You don't have to wait till you die to go there. You're already dead. Paul said, dead in your sins and your trespasses. What's hell if not that? So that's sin. I'm not sure why we're so obsessed with preaching that to people. I'm not sure why we think that our job is to make sure we keep preaching the imprisonment of sin to people who are sitting in the church believing on Jesus. Because if you want to preach people into prison in the church, you can do way better than going back and talking about drugs and sex and alcohol. That's like the big three. That's the only thing we know how to preach when it comes to sin. You can do way better if you want to preach people into prison in the church. Just throw some Ten Commandments in front of them, a bunch of church doctrines and ordinances. Next thing you know, you put everybody in lock and, under lock and key. Because the reality is, is that most of us in this room haven't been imprisoned to sin in a long time, but we've been imprisoned to performance. Yes. We've been slaves to trying to work for God. Yes. Please heaven. Get blessed. Get God to favor us. Make God love us. Please heaven so that he'll keep letting me have my job. Yes. Keep my kids out of the hospital. So he won't make me bankrupt. How many of you heard these things preached and taught? Amen. If you don't give, God might take your job away from you. You don't raise your kids according to this dictate, this standard, or this principle. They're going to end up out here, prostitutes on the street, drug addicts, they're going to be in jail somewhere in prison. They're going to run from home. They're going to leave you. They're going to be out here in the world getting kidnapped. We preach people into fear and, and discouragement and hell and put them in a prison of works and performance so they keep jumping through hoops, building our dreams, building our churches, building our religions. Don't tell me people aren't in prison. I've been going to church my whole life. All I've seen is prisoners. Walking around their spiritual orange jumpsuits with their little black numbers on it saying hallelujah, thank you Jesus while they try to jump through another spiritual hoop to please God. There are no prisoners in the world like people trying to live for God to make heaven their home. When Jesus came, died at Calvary as their sin and then came out of the tomb so they could have life and have it more abundant. What an incredible gift we've been given. The gift of life. The gift of hope. May we lay those jumpsuits down and realize we've been in prison. So everybody's been in prison. Everybody's been in an equal amount of prison. Maybe the prison is sin. Maybe the prison is religion. I'll give you another one. There's people in prison to condemnation and guilt. They, they've been out of that sin for a long time, but they've been carrying it with them forever. They've been carrying guilt and shame and pain for decades over what they did and what they said and who they hurt. And they think it's the price they're supposed to pay to God is to keep that ever before them. Always feel bad. Always feel guilty. To keep you humble. Always have that in front of you to keep you humble. And then never lay their guilt down at the feet of Jesus and just let him open the doors. There's all kinds of prisoners. We're, we're, we're prisoners to old mindsets. We're prisoners to old ways of thinking. Yes. Pastor so-and-so told us that. Didn't give us a lick of scripture. When he did, he gave us three out of context. But we believe it anyway, and we stay with it because we don't know any other way to think. And so we become prisoners of old ways of thinking and shut down new possibilities. Right. And never accept new revelation because we're scared to death to be deceived. That's a prison from hell. Yeah. All of us equally in prison. But for what reason? So that God can make us all feel stupid? Oh, you have a loving God. We have a loving God. We're not all in prison so we can all feel stupid. We're all in prison so we all get the same amount of mercy. So that when God pours out mercy, it opens prison doors. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to preach the gospel. Recovering of sight to the blind, 
set at liberty them that are bruised. To set the captives free. For a long time in my life and my ministry, I thought that what Jesus meant was that he was going to break your addictions. And I'd have prayer lines would come up and say, hey, if you've got an addiction, you've got a problem, bring it up here. Jesus is here tonight to set captives free. And I don't think that that's a wrong thing to do. Um, I think if the Holy Spirit directs you to lay your hands on someone, pray for them. Listen to the Holy Spirit. But I think that for so long I assumed that what Jesus meant by setting captives free always had to do with the addictions that are categorized by the world. What I didn't realize is that a lot of the people underneath the sound of that message were already captives. They were just captives to a religion and a mindset that kept them from living the abundant life. And what they needed freed from was the idea that they couldn't do enough. You see, Jesus said the Spirit of the Lord was upon him to set captives free. And he never went to a natural prison and opened a prison door and set one prisoner free through the judicial system of Rome or Israel. But he did confront mindsets. He did call people to repentance. He does do the same for us so that we can find a liberation. I've been writing a book for several months on Jonah. And I've seen Jonah now through so many different lenses and so many different ways. And it struck me in one of the last times I was working through one of my final chapters that Jonah rides that belly of the whale from the trip. He, was, he, he runs from God. He's on his way to Tarshish and he's thrown overboard and a whale swallows him. He spends three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. You know the story. He gets vomited up on the shore and he has to make the decision to go to Nineveh. And I felt like the Holy Spirit, one, one of the first places that, one of the first times that Romans 11.32 really became alive to me was in writing Jonah. When I'm watching Jonah ride that whale and I found that there was a part of me that thought, Jonah, you're just stupid. You shouldn't even be in this whale. What are you doing? If you hadn't been running from God, you wouldn't be in the whale. And the Holy Spirit began to deal with me and say, son, you don't realize but you're in a whale's belly as well. There's a rib cage around you. There's a prison bar around you. There has been. And the Holy Spirit dropped me into Romans 11.32. All of us have been in prison so that God can be merciful to all. And so I couldn't any longer look at Jonah as having this real issue. Jonah was me. I was him. I've been riding through my own whale. You see, I'm not here tonight to identify your whale. I'm not here tonight to identify what the bars are for you. That's not my job. See, that's the job of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for I'm here to set the captives free. The Spirit of the Lord is not on me to set captives free. I don't set captives free. Jesus does. You do not set captives free. Jesus does. You love people. You accept people. You point them to Jesus. Jesus sets captives free. You want to know how we're going to do this? Jesus. We need more Jesus. We need more songs about him. We need more sermons about him. We need more prayers about him. We need more focus on him. As Jesus becomes the centerpiece, people get their bondages broken. People get set free. They get taken out of their prison cells of guilt, shame, condemnation, sin, religion, mindsets. And they get put into the... They get... Pardon the crudeness of Jonah, but they get vomited out onto a new shore. And they're covered in the remnants of what they used to be, but they have the opportunity to go where they're supposed to go. And that is all of us in Christ coming out of the whale is a representation of coming out of the tomb. We come out into a newness of life in Christ and we leave our prison bars behind in the depths of the sea. As the Old Testament said, in the sea of God's forgetfulness. The sea of remembrance no more. What we went through gets lost and swallowed up in the depths and the darkness of who he is. And just in case you want to know how God made this happen, I think that what happens at Calvary is that Jesus descends into our darkness when he dies on the cross so that he can find all of us in Jonah's whale. He can find us in our own whale, our own spot, our own imprisonment and pour the mercy of his father on all of us so that we have the opportunity to walk out onto the shores of Nineveh 
And yes, we still stink a little bit like we were in that whale. Yes, we carry our memories and our pains and our scars and our religious PTSD. We do. We carry it with us. But that's okay because Daddy loves you. He loves the stench of you. He loves the look of you. And He meets you on that shore and He walks with you like Jesus meets Peter on that shore. Peter comes up out of the water like a new Jonah. And Jesus meets him on the beach and feeds him fish and bread by a fire and says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. All I ask of you, Peter, is treat people like I would treat them. Don't judge my sheep. Don't shear my sheep. Don't beat my sheep. Don't slit their throat. Don't eat them up. Don't be a wolf. Love them. What's he ask you to do? Love his people. Why? Because he's confined everybody to prison so that he can show mercy to how many? See, you won't forget that now. You won't forget that soon. Let me show you another New Testament author. I know we, we're going. It's a Friday night. What are you going to do, right? It's not even dark outside yet. Not yet. I want to show you another one because I've shown you a couple of Paul. I want to show you Peter. I want to take you to a text that unfortunately is one of those scriptures where we try to make it say something else because we're always trying to come up with what hell looks like and where demons are from. And we're always trying to answer impossible questions in the church. Isn't it interesting? If the Bible doesn't ask or answer it, then maybe it's not worth you fighting so hard over. So instead, what you could do is take what the Bible does say and realize it might be saying something to you. All right. So Peter, that same guy that comes up out of the Water with Jesus on the beach. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, this is deep into the New Testament canon, right near the end. 1 Peter chapter 3, and I want to read beginning just a couple of verses. Let's read verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for how many people? Once for all. Let's stop right there for a moment. Christ suffered for sins once for all. Who all had their sins suffered for in the body of Christ? All. Everyone. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring you to God. Now watch this. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Old translations say made alive by the Spirit. Some of them even capitalize the S. That's improper in the Greek. He's made alive in his spirit man, inside of which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. Let's stop right there. Jesus goes to Calvary and puts the sins into his body. And then in his spirit man, what's his physical man do after the cross? You know this answer. Let's just work through it. What's the physical body of Jesus do after the cross? Goes into the tomb, right? But according to Peter, his spirit man goes down, goes to preach to spirits in prison. Now, here's where we get off the rails right here. We're reading this, and this is an amazing truth. But we don't look at it as an amazing truth. We think it's trying to tell us some spiritual truth about what the other side looks like and that Jesus, that, that it had to do with preaching to old demons and, and now we're taking care of fallen angels. And Peter even uses the word Tartarus here for hell. Tartarus is a pagan word used by the Greeks to describe the spot where, the, where demons dwelled. In, in other words, to describe the spot where the darkest and worst things in the world dwelled. But I don't think Peter used it on accident. I think he used it on purpose. I think he's telling you that when Jesus took his, your, your sins into his body, his spirit man then went to deal with the very worst parts of you. His spirit man at Calvary dealt with the very worst parts wherever we're in prison. Jesus walked into our prison. That's what he was doing at the cross. While his physical man is in the body... His spirit man deals with our imprisonment. Wherever I am in chains, the crucified Christ walked into my prison and said, I am the answer. 
Here is the mercy of God. What does this mean for you? Your sins are in Christ. Your imprisonment is in Christ. Wherever you have failed, that's in Christ. So that Christ can be all in all in us and deliver us from whatever is wrong. This is why when you have an issue, you shouldn't run from him. You should run to him. He's not surprised. Guess where he's been standing? In the middle of your prison. See, you're out here trying to do song and dance and please God so that God will take you home someday. And Jesus is standing in your prison cell. Wherever you're in prison, he says, I'm in prison. And I came to set the captives free. What a beautiful thought. I came to share something with you to take you out of your imprisonment. Let's land once again with Paul, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, what a great place to stop. Paul says this in verse 4, God, who is rich in mercy, time out. Who's he gonna have, how many people is he going to have mercy on, according to Romans 11.32? Oh, okay, good, you got it. God, who's rich in mercy. How rich in mercy is he? Everybody gets mercy. God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The rich, merciful God has made us alive together in Christ. By His grace, we have been saved. This is the message we need to be preaching to the world. Bring your death to Jesus. Bring your imprisonment to Jesus. Bring your pain to Jesus. He is not waiting for you up here at the altar. He's standing in the middle of your prison cell. Otherwise, what in the world was the cross for? His body went to the grave, but his spirit walked right into the... I, th- I hope I'm saying this in a way that... Let me try one more time. I've got to be settled in my own spirit, okay? I've got to try it one more time. Please don't look at the cross as a moment that happened 2,000 years ago and was finished. That Jesus descended in the spirit realm into a, into a cell in the middle of the spirit earth and delivered people, and then that was a done deal. Instead... When Christ died on the cross, don't put that as an event on the calendar. Put that as an event in the heavenlies. The Spirit of Jesus walked into every imprisonment of everyone who would ever live right there at Calvary. Stepped into the imprisonment of everyone who ever lived because God put all imprisoned so that He could have mercy on all. What do we want people to do? See that Jesus. See that Jesus. That Jesus that loves you. That Jesus that died for you. That Jesus that opens prison doors and sets captives free. What is your need? You don't have to come here to meet Him. Turn to the Jesus that's standing in the middle of your prison. That's standing in the middle of your hell. And has never went anywhere. And never will go anywhere. It's where He died to dwell so that we could be made alive. With Him, by grace, you have been saved. Hallelujah. That's good news. That's good news. I'm stopping. I could go all night talking about Jesus, but I'm going to stop. I've given you a lot to think about, to stir, to wrestle with, to deal with. And if you are here at the end of the message and you go, yeah, but... What about this and what about that and what about this? That's good. That's okay. Let those what ifs keep you wrestling. And, but what you don't do, this is what I beg you, don't let the what ifs cause you to go, nah, nah, what he said, nah, too many what ifs. I'm not, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna wrestle that out because that doesn't get us anywhere. Instead, let the what ifs keep you wrestling, going. 
What if? And you go, well, what? Boy, what if sounds awfully wishy-washy. What if is Romans 9. It's Paul going, what if God is this kind of God? And at the end, we find out God's not that kind of God. But you don't learn if you don't ask. That's what Paul's trying to teach you. So he goes, sometimes you got to go, what if God's like this? Go, oh, that's sacrilegious. Don't ever say that about God. No, don't do that. We're doing that to young people sometimes. And then they stop asking good questions. And then they just leave altogether because they're afraid they're asking the wrong questions. There's no such thing as the wrong question. You go ahead and ask whatever you want about God. I mean, if Paul can accuse God of it, what if God's the kind of God that wants to show his wrath on vessels fit for destruction so that he can show how good he is on the merciful ones? It doesn't even sound good when you say it out loud. It sounds horrible. And so he doesn't land there. Instead, he keeps going. He keeps going. He keeps... So I beg of you, keep going. Keep going. Keep going. And if, and if where you end up is somewhere totally different, at least you'll have put Jesus in the middle of prison for a minute and see what he could do there. And I challenge you that if you can get Jesus in the middle of that prison, you've landed on the key to this whole baby, this whole thing. It's what God was doing was putting us all in the same jail cell so that he could walk into the middle of the same jail cell. Yes. For all of us. Sometimes I think we're doing it wrong. We're saying to the world, come up here and make Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. You don't know him, but we're going to introduce you to him. I don't think that's Paul's gospel. I think his gospel is Jesus is standing in the middle of your hell. Just turn over and look at him. Take his hand. When you do, he makes you alive together with him. By grace you are saved. Father, thank you for what has been, to me, a fun experience in the Word. I've had a blast tonight looking at the Word. What I hope that we've done is given your sheep food to eat that's what you told us to do food to eat we haven't beat them we haven't sheared them we haven't smacked them we haven't slit their throat we haven't kicked them we put food on the table i pray they can consume it and they eat it and father what they can't eat they don't have to eat but they have the same holy spirit that i do and they have the same holy spirit that jesus does and so they'll wrestle just as paul wrestled with the romans they'll wrestle and see where they land and if we can just be a little more convinced tonight when I say amen, by the time we get to the amen, if we can be just a little more convinced that you've confined all to prison so that you can be merciful to all, then God, that is something worth proclaiming to everyone we know. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.